Wow, what a, what a line. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransom home to bring, then anew his song will sing. Right with men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and language, then anew his song will sing. Hallelujah, what a savior, right? And it is, it is for that day, it is for that moment that we groan here and now. We long for that day in anticipation of what a glorious day that is going to be for those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we groan for that day because we know that that day brings the deliverance from all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the sin that we currently struggle with. We look forward to that day. And that's what Paul talked about last week in the text in 2 Corinthians. He said we groan for that day. We look forward to that day. We long for that day with great anticipation. And in the meantime, between this day and that day, we live so that we are pleasing to him, right? We live in a way that will please him. We serve him. We proclaim the gospel. We serve people. We love people. We preach his word. We declare the gospel message. And we have hope for that glorious coming day when Christ returns. We talked about last week how this this truth and this excitement and this hope and this anticipation really is only for those who trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. If you don't know him, if you don't know him as your Savior and Lord, the day that we just sang about for you is not a day to look forward to. It is a day that brings only judgment and condemnation and suffering for all of eternity. And I say that to you not to manipulate you or to scare you, but I say that to you because I love you. I love you and I want you to hear that the only hope, the only relief, the only rescue that is available on the planet is through Jesus Christ. By God's grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be saved. So my encouragement to you is to repent, believe, trust in Him, run to Him, follow Him. And join us next time we sing that song with excitement and anticipation and hope, knowing that that's what your future looks like. That's what your eternity looks like. Join in that song that we will sing for all of eternity. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is where you need to go. I already told you what we talked about last week. This week we'll see more encouragement, more talk about what ministry looks like, about the impact of the resurrection of Christ for us, the impact of the reality of our resurrection in the future. We'll talk about this future perspective, this eternal perspective uh, that impacts the way we live here and now. You'll see it very clearly in the text today. I'm so excited to preach today. There's so much good gospel truth in the text today and next week. Let me tell you right off the bat, if you have lost friends family, neighbors, folks that you know who are far from God, bring them in next week. <laughs> bring them any week, right? But bring them next week. There's so much good gospel truth in the text next week and so much this week. Oh, it's going to be a good day. It's a good day already, right? All right. Check it out. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll do 11 through 15 today. This is what God says uh, through Paul to the church at Corinth and, and also certainly to us. He says, therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Listen to this. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. No? Amen to that, right? We have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. If you don't see the gospel in that, you can't see the gospel. 
If you don't see the gospel in that, you cannot see the gospel. And our prayer this morning will be that your eyes will be open to see the gospel today. That God will lift the veil and that you will see and love and obey and follow this great truth. Let's pray together. God, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for truth to sing. Thank you for truth to preach. Thank you for truth to receive and obey and follow. Thank you for the gospel, this good, good news that one died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. God, I thank you for Jesus dying for us and rising again. I thank you for the way you have changed so many lives in this room by your power, by your grace through the gospel. God, our prayer this morning is that you would change more lives. That you would bring some from death to life today. From hopelessness to hope today for your own glory. And God, our prayer is for those who have already been saved that you will spur us to obedience and faithfulness to you. That we will groan and anticipate the day when you return. That we will please you here and now. And that we will serve you with everything that we've got. Compelled by fear and love. Simultaneously fear and love as we serve and preach and love the people around us. God, help us today to understand your word, but not just understand it, obey it, apply it, live it. God, it does little if we just understand it. We want to be changed, and we need your power to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so... The first word in verse 11 is therefore. We've talked about this a lot, how these words connect therefore, but, for, also. All of these words connect the text together. And we need to see the text of 2 Corinthians all connected together. It's one big idea, one big thought that flows together. In fact, probably the best way to preach 2 Corinthians is all one one shot. Just sit down for a day or five and, and listen. And, and preach through the whole thing in one shot. But we can't do that, so we've got to break it into some small parts. And, but even in breaking into small parts, I want you to see how it is connected. It is clear that what we see in verses 11 to 15 is connected directly to the text that we preached last week, maybe specifically to verse 10. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Does that make sense to you? So he's just talked about this judgment that is to come. And last week I told you that the specific judgment he was talking about is for us as believers, that we will give an account. Remember, I told you there's not, not a talk of condemnation in this judgment, in the Bema judgment seat of Christ. This is for believers in Jesus Christ who will stand before him and give an account and be responsible for what we did in this life. It is a very real judgment. It is a very real deal. And he is going to say that's going to impact the thought of that, the reality of that is going to impact why and how I preach now. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord, not in a sense of he's worried about being condemned, not in a sense about he's worried about going to heaven or not going to heaven, but in a sense that he fears the Lord with respect and awe and reverence and wonder in a similar way that I have respect and awe and fear, reverence and wonder for my dad even though I dogged on him last week, right? Um, 
I fear him. And as I live my life, I, I want to live in a way that is pleasing to him in so many ways. I want him to be able to look at me and say, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of the way you're living. And you are honoring me by the way you are living. And Paul says it's a similar thing when he, when he deals with Christ. He says, I want to live in a way in a fear of him, not in the sense of abuse or oppression, but in respect and reverence and awe and wonder. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And so we live our lives and we minister knowing that this judgment is coming, knowing that we will ultimately stand before God. And James tells us that teachers uh, bear an extra burden in this, that we have an extra burden as we deliver the truth of God's word to people. I am confident that I will stand before Christ and give an account for every word I've spoken from the pulpit. Every word I've taught from the pulpit carries carries a huge amount of weight, and I will answer for those things. And that's the way Paul preaches. He says in this verse, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That word persuade is an interesting word because Paul is constantly trying to distance himself from it. In so much of his writing, he's saying, well, listen, we don't persuade. In fact, when we read just a minute ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, we, don't, we, didn't, we didn't come to you trying to persuade you. We didn't come to you trying to manipulate you. We didn't come to you trying to wrestle you into some decision. We simply knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's all we proclaim to you. And so it's interesting here that, that most of the time Paul tries to distance himself from persuasion because that's what these false apostles were doing. These false apostles who had come to Corinth and caused so much division, they were master manipulators. They would come to the folks and they would either make them feel great about where they were or terrible about where they were, all in an effort to manipulate them to do what they wanted them to do. Does that make sense? They weren't just standing before the people proclaiming the simple message of the gospel. They were twisting them and and manipulating them to get them to do what they wanted to do. And so Paul is always wanting to distance himself from that. And yet here he says, we really do persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And it's interesting that as much as he tries to distance himself from that, he realizes that's what he's wanting to do. But he's wanting to do it with pure motives. He's wanting to do it with the truth of God. Let me read you uh, a quote about persuasion and biblical preaching. This is what one scholar says. He says, persuasion implies using truth to move the will. And this is what real Christian preaching is. True preaching does not try to bombard the will by stirring emotion through psychological techniques. Instead, it presents compelling truth and convincing argument. This does not mean that there will be no emotional content to the gospel preaching, but that this will arise from its essential message and not be artificially attached to it. It is truth that moves us most deeply to action, and depth is of supreme importance here. And and I hope that's what we do here. I hope that when you get excited because we're singing a song, you're excited not because the bass is boom, 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 or the drums are going, or that, that it's a great beat or a great tune. I hope what gets you excited is that it's a great truth. Every time we sing that song that says, that says the curtain was torn in two, the veil was torn, right? The whole earth trembled and the veil was torn. I feel in this room that everyone gets excited. And I hope it's not just because the music swells at that point. I hope it's because you know that when Christ died, the veil was torn, right? The whole earth responded to the death of Christ and the veil was torn. And all of a sudden, what was inaccessible to us becomes accessible to us. And we rejoice and we are excited because of that truth. Does that make sense to you? And I, and I, hope, I hope that you see that when I preach. I don't get excited because that's the way I'm wired. I get excited because of these truths, these truths that God has given to us to proclaim. They're worth being excited about, right? So we want to, we want to whip ourselves into a frenzy because of the truth. We want to be so excited because of the truth. And Paul says, that's what I do. That's what I do. I'm here to persuade you, but not to manipulate you. 
not to twist you, but to simply declare the truth in such a convincing and passionate way that you will be persuaded. And that's what we want to do. And that's what we will make every effort to do today. Paul's understanding of eternal accountability compelled him to preach the gospel. And he, compelled, he preached the gospel in a way that men were persuaded, but they were persuaded by clear motives. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God. He says, But all, all this is made manifest. All this is laid bare before God. And, and, I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. He says, I hope that when we try to persuade you, you realize that we are persuading you with the truth, not with psychological technique. I hope that you get that. I hope that when we preach and when we proclaim, you don't feel like you've been twisted or manipulated. You feel like you've just encountered the truth and your life has been changed. That's what I hope. (laughs) That's what I hope when I preach. I hope that you don't feel like I've taken you on some kind of journey or jerked you around from here to there but rather that simply you've encountered the truth and the truth has changed your life. Does that make sense? All right, so look what he says after that. In verse 12, he's just talked about the way he preaches, and he says in verse 12, We are not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer to those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Basically what he says in these verses is that when the false apostles say, when the false apostles say about Paul that he's not much to look at, when they say that he's not much of a speaker, when they say that he is weak and sick and poor, when they criticize him because he has been beaten and imprisoned, he says, you just tell them that when Paul came to town, he preached the truth. He told us about Jesus. He told us about his death, burial, and resurrection, and our lives were changed. Yeah, he may be poor. Yeah, they may beat him up a lot. Yeah, they may send him to prison, but this is what happened. He came and he preached the gospel, and our lives were forever changed. And therefore, we are proud of Paul, right? Against all of these people who say, oh, he doesn't dress well. Oh, he doesn't look nice. Oh, he's not very eloquent. Yeah, but he gives us the truth. And that's what we need, right? And I think as a church, we need to long for that. We need to desire that. In fact, I would say we need to demand that from those who would lead us from those who would preach to us, from those who would lead us in song. We need to demand that they would give us the truth. Maybe it's not the most polished thing in the world. Maybe it's not the most beautiful thing in the world. What we need is the truth, right? I'd take truth over polish any day, wouldn't you? You better. (laughs) You better. You better take truth over polish any day. And that's what Paul says. He says, they can put all the confidence they want in the flesh. Paul says, our confidence, our life, our ministry is not built on works of the flesh. It is built on the power of God, right? Look what he says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read that again. You guys did a good job preaching today, by the way, right? All of you got in on the preaching. You had an opportunity to, at least. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Do you get what he's saying there, right? He says, I wasn't trying to persuade you and manipulate you, but I was trying to persuade you with the power of God and the truth of God. That's the way it looks when we preach. That's the way it looks when we preach from the pulpit. That's the way it looks when we preach to our family and our friends at work or at school. We simply give them the truth. And the truth is powerful. And the Holy Spirit is powerful. Look at verse 12. 
He says, we are not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Verse 13 says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. There are kind of two ways we can go with that verse. And I think they're two legitimate ways, and probably he means both of them. On the one hand, he says, if we're out of our minds, it's for God. And if we're of sound mind, it's for you. He's basically saying, if it looks like we're crazy, we kind of are right? If it, if it looks like we're crazy as we minister and as we preach and as we serve and sacrifice in love, if it looks like we're crazy, we kind of are. Service to God is kind of crazy as far as the world is concerned, right? Yeah. You ought to listen when I tell folks, what, what do I do? Go to a class reunion. What do you do for a living? Well, I'm a preacher. Oh, boy. I'm a preacher. I'm a preacher in a Baptist church. Oh, man. Have any kids? Yeah, five of them. Oh, you must be crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. But when I get together with you guys and I say I'm a preacher, you say, woof, right? I say I'm in a Baptist church. Oh, five kids, let's go, right? <laughs> because there's a difference between the wisdom of the world and the, and the wisdom of God, right? There's a difference in the whole economy. And he says, so if it, if it seems like we're out of our minds, yeah, we are, but we're out of our minds for God. And if we're of sound mind, it's for your sake. Right? That's one level that he's talking to them about in this verse. But I think the other level may be more specific. Remember back in 1 Corinthians when we talked about tongues and prophecy and how Paul prefers prophecy over tongues in the congregation? He says basically, I would rather you speak five intelligible words of prophecy that everyone can understand than 10,000 words in a tongue that no one understands. You remember that? You remember how he argued, though, that there is a value to tongues when it comes to our relationship with God? Remember this? And, and how that's a very private thing, but, it, but in a public thing, it can be so distracting. You remember that whole talk? Maybe that's what he's talking about here. Look what he says in this verse. He says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Remember at one point he said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. In fact, maybe he said more than all of you. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but that's between me and God. Right? If I'm beside myself, if I'm in this ecstasy, if I'm involved in this ecstatic speech, that's for God. But when I'm with you, look what he says. Look what he says in this. I think it's an exact parallel to what he said in 1 Corinthians. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. When I'm related with God, maybe that looks one way. But when I'm relating to you, when I'm serving you, when it is for you, I need to be proclaiming the gospel in the most clear, concise, simple, powerful way that I possibly can. Does that make sense? I don't need to get caught up in some uh, rhetoric. I don't need to get caught up in some illustration. I just need to declare the gospel to you simply. He says, if I'm out of my mind, it's for God. If I'm of sound mind, it's for your sakes, right? And that's what we all long for, a simple, clear declaration of the gospel. And Paul says, that's what I want to give to you. That's what I want to give to you every time I'm with you. It is for you. And then in verse 14 and 15, he tells us what that simple gospel is. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. What does he mean by love of Christ? Does he mean his love for Christ or does he mean Christ's love for us? Well, maybe he means both, right? Maybe on some level he's talking about both of these things because he certainly is compelled by his love for Christ, right? He loves Jesus and wants to serve him. We talked about that last week, right? He wants to live in a way that is always pleasing to him. But maybe more particularly in these verses, he's talking about Christ's love for him because that's what he articulates in the next, next few phrases. Look what he says. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. 
Christ's love for us controls us, compels us, right? Encourages us. The reason why we preach, the reason why we suffer, the reason why we sacrifice is because of Christ and what he has done for us. The reason why we preach the gospel is because of the love of Christ. Look what he says. For the love of Christ controls us. That word control uh, means to exert force directionally. It doesn't mean to absolutely take control and take the reins and force one direction, but rather it means to motivate, to motivate to action. And so think about it. I want you to think about it for a minute. Think about what Christ has done for you. Think about the way he has loved you. What do you want to do in response to that? I'll tell you what a lot of us want to do. We want to just sit down and enjoy it. We think about Christ's death on the cross for our sins. We think about his resurrection, the victory he has over sin. We think about the way he's come to our lives and rescued us. We think about the way he's forgiven us. And what we want to do is simply sit back like we did a couple of days ago with pumpkin pie. We want to just sit back and savor it. We want to just enjoy it. We want to make it last as long as we can. And we want to taste every little bit of it. Is that what the love of Christ should do in our hearts? That should be part of what we do, right? We should definitely worship. We should definitely enjoy it. But it should compel us to action, right? Because he has died for us and not just us, right? But men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and language. And they got to hear the gospel so they can believe it, right? So when we think about what Christ has done for us, it should compel us to preach the gospel, right? Why? Why are we going to leave it all and go to the nations? Because of the love of Christ, right? And because of the fear of God that we will give an account for what we do in this life on the day of judgment, right? And the love of Christ compels us to go. You get this at all? When we think about what he has done for us, it compels us to action. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. I think that is the essence of the gospel. That is the idea of substitutionary atonement. Full atonement, can it be? You say, yeah, hallelujah, what a savior. Right, full atonement. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize what it means when it says that one died for all? Who should have died? You. But he died for you. Isn't that the very essence of the gospel? That God demonstrates his own love for us? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? We read about that. You said that just a minute ago. Did you get that? That that's the heart of the gospel. That we are the ones who deserve to die. And why do we deserve to die? Because we're sinners, right? Because we sin. We deserve to die. That's the reality of God's righteousness. That's the reality of God's purity. That's the reality of his holiness. That's the reality of his judgment. I have sinned, and therefore I deserve to die because the wages of sin is death. Who did not deserve to die? The only person that's ever walked the planet that did not deserve to die. Jesus, right? He's the only one that didn't sin, therefore the only one that should not have died. And he's the one that died. Why? Paul says it very simply here. One died for all. One died for all. The substitutionary sacrifice, the Lamb of God. That's what John the Baptist calls him when he sees him. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is good news, right? Look what he says, though. He he elaborates further. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Is that a typo? Is it a typo that it says one died for all, therefore all died? Shouldn't it be one died for all, therefore all live? No, that's not what he's talking about here. He'll get to that in the next verse, right? 
But here he's talking about that Christ died for us as the substitutionary atonement for our sin, and therefore we also died. To what? To sin, to ourselves, to this life, to the old life. We have died to sin. And we have died with Christ. We have died and the old life is gone and we have been raised to walk in brand new life, right? That's what we celebrated last week with Matteo and Beto, right? The old life is gone and new life has come, raised to walk in new life, right? That is good, good news. Something that we certainly celebrate. He says, one died for all, therefore all died. All died to the old self, all died to sin, all died with Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 15. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Right? He died for our sins. We died to our sins with him. And he raised us up, right? And he has made us alive. But it's not the same life. It's not the same life. It's a new life. We are a new creation with a new heart and a new motive and a new goal and a new objective, right? We are a brand new creature who now lives not for ourselves, not for our flesh, not for our sin, but we live for Him. We are slaves of His. We used to be slaves of sin, right? But we've died to sin. We've died with Christ. And we've been raised to walk in new life. Now we're slaves of Christ. And we serve Him. And we obey Him. And we love Him. Does this make sense to you? You see how this is, the, this is the talk of the whole gospel. He says, one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I want to read to you Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Aaron uh, quotes this text pretty often uh, as he's talking from here. Look what it says in Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Right? I don't live for the flesh anymore. I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. Right? Who gave himself for me. And rose for me. And gave me life. We live for him. So the question at the end of the day is, are you dead? Are you dead? And some of you are nodding your head. You get it, right? There are two ways to be dead in this room. You are dead in this room. One way or another, you are dead in this room. There's some of you who are in this room today who are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead in a bad, bad way. Does that make sense? Right? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are hopeless apart from Christ. You are separated him, from Him because of your sin. And there is enmity between you and Him because of your sin. And you are dead. The good news is, if that's where you're at today, you can be raised to life. You can be raised to life by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But there are others of you today who are dead. And I say it with a big smile. Because I'm dead. Dead to sin. It no longer is the master over me. I'm dead to the flesh. It's no longer the master over me. I'm dead to the old life and raised in new life. So the question is, which kind of dead are you? Are you dead in your trespasses and sins? Or are you dead to your trespasses and sins? Are you dead in the flesh? Or are you dead to the flesh? Paul says... 
One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Two applications today for two different groups of people. First is this, for the Christian. What we see in this text are two motivations for our ministry. Two motivations for what we do as we preach and serve and love. Fear and love. The fear of God and the love of Christ. Does the, some of you buck against that, say that the fear of God should motivate you. Paul, Paul is not afraid of that idea. Paul says, I know the fear of the Lord, and therefore I persuade men. I know what it's going to be to stand before him in judgment. I know that I'm going to give an account for what I've done in this life, and therefore I preach the gospel to men, and I persuade men. I heard someone say the other day that most of the church, most Christians, have never invested in anyone have never preached the gospel to anyone, have never trained someone in the ways of the Lord, have never been involved in discipleship at all. They have simply received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ and then done nothing. And it's true. It's true. It's not just a preacher who says that. It's not just a guy who says that's what's happened. That is true. And I see it. I see it all around me people who are glad to receive God's grace and then do nothing. And I want you to know that you will give an account for that before the throne of Christ. And I don't think any of you want to stand before him on that day and say, I invested in no one. I preached to no one. I discipled no one. And I'm not sure on that day you need to fear condemnation. But I think at least it'll be embarrassing. And I don't want any of you to be there. I don't want any of you to be in that position where you say, I did nothing with the grace you've given to me. But I think if we think about it a little bit, a lot of us in this room would have to say, that's where I'm at. That's the way it's going to be. I haven't done anything. I've been a Christian for 20 years and haven't done anything been a Christian for 20 years and never shared my faith with anyone. been a Christian for 20 years and never helped someone grow. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Fear should motivate us. But so should the love of Christ. Think of what He has done for you. Think of how He has loved you and gave Himself up for you. Think of how Jason's saying that He stepped out of the throne laid down the crown and came to earth to be spit on and mocked and crucified. And why did he do that? For you. That should compel you to service. That should compel you to love. That should compel you to action. It should at the very least compel you to sympathy and love for people who don't know about it. He did that for you. And guess what? You're not the only one. You're not the only one he did that for. He did that for men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and and language. And some of them never heard about it. Some of them never even heard what he has done for them. The fear of God should compel you. And the love of Christ should compel you. And those two things are not opposites. Those two things are flip sides of the same coin. Christian, there are two motivations for our ministry. We should embrace them both and get busy. Get to action. Fear and love compel us to preach the gospel. And then the second application is for those of us 
who are gathered together in this room who are far from God. Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, and I want to persuade you. I want to do everything I can possibly do today to persuade you. Look what he says in chapter, chapter 5, verse 16. This is the text from next week. He says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, listen to this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to beg you this morning, be reconciled to God. I want to stand before you and preach as though God were making an appeal through me to you. Be reconciled to God through Christ. I want you to know that He loves you. That He loves you even though you are quite unlovely. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that and you'll admit that. How unlovely you are. How dark your heart is and how sinful your life is. And yet He loves you loves you and demonstrates that love by dying for you. He loves you even though you're quite unlovely and he died for you even though you deserve to die and he does not. That's amazing, isn't it? We read in the text a while ago, one would would barely die for a righteous man, let alone an unrighteous man, right? It doesn't make any sense that the perfect one would come and die for us. That the one who deserves all the glory and all the honor in the entire universe would lay that down and come and be crucified for you. It doesn't make any sense, does it? But it's the best news ever, right? I talk about this a lot with, with, with the kids, using the kids as an, as an example. Sophie, what would you think if you got in big trouble and were about to get a bad spanking and Isaac came in and said, Dad, I love Sophie so much. I just love her so much. And, and even though I haven't done anything wrong and I know she's done everything wrong, I want you to spank me instead of her and let her go outside and play. What would you think, Soph? He's gone crazy, (laughs) right? But I'll take it, right? And I think maybe that's, that's kind of the way we need to think about the gospel. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy that God would do that for us. But I'll take it. I'll take it because it's the truth. I'll take it because he's done that for us. I want you to take it too. I want you to believe. I want you to follow Jesus. I want you to repent of your sins and trust in Him. I want you to have hope so that you can sing that song with us next week. Looking forward to the day when Christ returns. I want to persuade you that He loves you even though you're quite unlovely. I want to persuade you that Christ died for you even though you're the one that deserved to die and He did not. I want to persuade you that Christ rose again and that He will give you victory. He will give you righteousness. He will give you life if you repent of your sins and believe in Him. I want to persuade you of these things, but I cannot. I can declare them to you. I can urge you. I can beg you, Paul says. But I don't think I can really persuade you. I think God has to do that. And so we're going to pray in just a minute that he will. That he will. That for Christians, he will compel us to action with fear and love. And that for unbelievers, 
He will persuade them. He will persuade them to repent and believe and follow Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. God, thank you for teaching us to fear you. Thank you for teaching us about your love for us. God, as your people, we want to be compelled to action. God, we are sorry and we are ashamed of ourselves. When we are lazy, when we are inactive, when we do not serve you and obey you, God, we pray that you will help us to understand, as Paul understood, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And God, I pray that we will respond to that and to the love of Christ displayed on the cross by preaching, persuading, begging men to be reconciled to God. God, I pray that your church will be a church of action, a people of action. God, move us, motivate us, compel us with fear and love to be servants of you. And God, we do pray for men and women and boys and girls who are in this room today who are far from you, who are rebelling against you and refusing you. God, I pray that you persuade them, that you love them even though they're unlovely that Christ died for them even though they deserve to die and he does not? God, will you persuade them that Christ rose again and will give them victory, righteousness, life, if they repent and believe in him? God, will you persuade them today that Christ is their only hope? God, give faith. Give repentance to men and women and boys and girls who desperately need it. God, help us all to respond rightly to your truth today. Help us to be excited about truth, compelled to action because of your grace. God, help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.